0: History this week, June 1st, 1840. I'm Sally Helm. U.S. Marshals are going door-to-door in New York City, the most populous city in the country at the time, and also in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the 50th most populous city, and in New Albany, Indiana, number 100 on the population list with 4,226 people. We know the 1840 population in these cities down to a person because of those U.S. Marshals making home visits. June 1st marks the beginning of the 1840 U.S. Census, the sixth census ever conducted in the nation you can still find copies of the questionnaires that the U.S. Marshals were carrying that day. They're filled out in this perfect old-timey cursive. And you can see that the Marshals sat down with people in parlors in Boston, maybe on porches at slave plantations in the South, and they asked them some basic questions about age, about race. They also asked, what kind of work do you do? Is it in the category, navigation of the oceans? Is it perhaps a learned profession? And they asked two questions that would end up really dividing the nation. These questions were about mental health. They asked for, quote, the number of white persons who were insane and idiots and then the same question about Black people in the US, both free and enslaved. This was the first time that the census recorded any information about mental health. This year, in the 2020 census, there are also two questions about mental health, though they're very different. They ask whether people have a condition that makes it hard for them to concentrate or make decisions or do things like errands on their own. It makes sense to ask this kind of question, One of the purposes of the census is to figure out how to distribute federal resources. So it's important to know who might need what and where they live. But in 1840, those questions end up serving a very different purpose. It's still 21 years before the Civil War, and pro-slavery forces use the census to argue that freedom is driving Black people insane. Today, how did the data gathered in the 1840 census get twisted into a tool for pro-slavery propaganda? And how did it corrupt the mental health system for decades to come?
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?
0: learned about the 1840 census from Professor King Davis. He called us from his house in rural Virginia.
2: And the process whereby shows around.
0: The Wi-Fi was not good. But Dr. Davis saved our interview.
2: What I can do is that I can jump in my truck and drive about four miles to the library.
0: A couple minutes later. What are you seeing now? Where are you now?
2: I'm at the Beaverdam Library.
0: Beaverdam is an unincorporated area in Virginia. And Virginia is where King Davis has worked for many years in mental health, including as the commissioner of the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health. He's now a professor at the School of Information at the University of Texas at Austin.
2: And my area of research is in mental health, principally of Black populations.
0: How did you get interested in mental health? How did that become your area?
2: I got really started when I was in high school. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and there were several of my neighbors who had some kind of ailment that took them to a place called Taft State Hospital, which was the black hospital in Oklahoma. One of the women had epilepsy and the other person used to take up the metal fences in our neighborhood and would periodically go to Taft. And uh, he was described as having schizophrenia.
0: So Dr. Davis's interest in mental health, particularly of Black populations, it started close to home. But it ended up taking him far back in time to look at the roots of the system that he and all of us now live within. In the 1700s, mental illness was not well understood. Sometimes mental illness was thought to be linked to demonic possession. But by the early 1800s, those ideas start to change. There's an important medical book published describing psychiatric disorders. There are new treatments, though they're often barbaric and not helpful. And there are some very specific ideas forming about who is likely to get a psychiatric illness.
2: The sort of hypothesis, if you will, that people had was that the persons who were most at risk of developing mental illness or lunacy or insanity, as it was called, were persons who were civically engaged, persons who owned property and had some overall responsibility for the generation of wealth or profit. So in these earliest days, the persons that were considered to be most at risk were overall wealthy white men, not women, not poor whites, not Native Americans, and certainly not African Americans. In fact... There was the concept of immunity, that Africans were automatically immune from the risk of mental illness. They couldn't get it. Africans were seen as, for the most part, being docile, uh, lacking ability, lacking intellect. And the logic was, mental illness was a loss of the ability to reason. And since there was no acceptance that Africans had the ability to reason... They
0: couldn't lose what they didn't have. But this idea starts to change around the 1830s.
2: This is just my own reasoning. I think it changed in great measure in 1831 with Nat Turner's revolt.
0: Nat Turner was an enslaved Black preacher in Virginia. He led a group of slaves in a rebellion that killed around 55 white people.
2: And you get in the newspaper articles of the time period the extraordinary fear that this rose in the white population. And in subsequent years, those things became associated with Blackness. Blackness, dangerousness, violence, dependency.
0: Dr. Davis told us that in the 1830s, after Nat Turner's revolt, the racist stereotype of the docile Black man? began to be replaced by this different stereotype, a violent Black man. And in terms of mental health, this helped set the stage for a change.
2: Away from the immunity hypothesis that had been used throughout much of America's history to what I call the exaggerated risk hypothesis, the notion became that Blacks would not be
0: able to manage freedom. that they wouldn't be able to manage freedom. There had long been this pernicious lie that slavery was gentle and good for enslaved people. And now a new layer was added, that freedom, correspondingly, would be bad. That it would be a burden Black people couldn't bear. Now, there's another trend during this decade that might seem unrelated.
2: The 1830s was the period where the Association for Statistics got born. And it got born out of an interest in counting Americans and counting characteristics of Americans. So I think from 1831 until 1839, part of the the quest for information was about what was going to happen when freedom came to these Africans. Would they then become dangerous, violent, and dependent on the rest of the population. And I think that's part of what gave William Weaver uh, the interest in adding questions to the census, these questions about
0: lunacy. — William Weaver was the man in charge of the 1840 census. At this point, the U.S. Census Bureau didn't yet exist. Weaver's position is superintendent of the census. It's actually a newly created job. And he isn't an obvious fit.
2: William Weaver was a guy who had been dismissed from the United States Navy for a lack of performance, had no background, no experience in statistics, no background or experience at all in dealing with large population sets of data. But as the superintendent of the census, he had extraordinary power to decide the questions that were asked and how they were managed.
0: And one of those questions is about lunacy. How many white people, how many free Black people, and how many enslaved Black people are, quote, insane and idiots? By the way, those obviously sound to us like messed up ways to describe this, but they were generic terms for different types of mental illness at the time. And there was no special definition for the census takers, no criteria they were using to fill out this part of the questionnaire. But Starting on June 1st, 1840, U.S. Marshals go door-to-door and start asking these questions and all the other questions. We do something similar today.
2: I was a census taker myself once.
0: Oh, really? Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. Well, you go and you knock on people's doors and you identify yourself. I'm King Davis. Uh, I'm a census taker. And the persons generally were responsive in the neighborhoods that I went to. And so I suspect that in the 1840s, the process was pretty much the same. But in the 1840s, somebody also then went to the various institutions and raised those same questions. Who are the persons who are in the New York City facility for the mentally ill or the mentally disabled? Uh, Are they black? Are they white? And when they get the data? it said, in effect, that Blacks in the North who were free were 10 times greater in terms of frequency of developing lunacy than Blacks in the South who were enslaved.
0: For white people, the numbers are similar in the North and the South. But for Black people, they look vastly different. And so this census immediately becomes a weapon for pro-slavery political factions.
2: It fit their notion that Africans enslaved function better than they do when they are free, that their lifestyles are enhanced, that their individual productivity is better, that their hold on reality is greater, and that their threat to the white population, either because of dependency or violence, is controlled
0: and minimal. John C. Calhoun, a former vice president and a leader of the secession movement, he seizes on the census results. He says in a speech, quote, Here is proof of the necessity of slavery. The African is incapable of self-care and sinks into lunacy under the burden of freedom. It is a mercy to give him the guardianship and protection from mental death. The guardianship. That's a euphemism for slavery. A newspaper in the South publishes an anonymous letter about the census results saying that slaves are, quote, the happiest class on this continent. Even sociologists and scientists start to accept the results. It seems that the census has confirmed racist beliefs, offered statistical proof that freedom drives Black people insane. Until about two years later, when a statistician and doctor named Edward Jarvis breaks his leg. Hold
1: up.
0: In June of 1843, a few years after those U.S. Marshals finished their door knocking, Dr. Edward Jarvis and his wife are riding back to their home in Massachusetts in a horse-drawn carriage when a boy shoots a firecracker in their direction. The horse is startled. It jumps to the side, jerking the carriage, and Jarvis falls out and breaks his leg. He's in bed for four weeks. And during that time, he busies himself by reading the full results of the 1840 census. This may not sound like your idea of sickbed comfort reading, but Jarvis was once the president of the American Statistical Association, and he's a doctor who has worked with those suffering from mental illness. So he's interested. And as he reads, he starts to say to himself,
2: My gosh. Look at the number of errors in the calculation of this data and how it was collected. It should be rejected. —
0: Jarvis realizes that something is very, very wrong. First, there's an obvious problem. It has to do with hospitals and other institutions where those suffering from lunacy were housed. —
2: There were no places in the South that accepted uh, African-Americans For hospitalization. The only hospital in the southern states that accepted free Blacks was the public hospital at Williamsburg, Virginia, the first mental institution in the United States. And they accepted on average one free Black person per year for 100
0: years. So there are Black people in mental institutions in the North and not in the South, but not necessarily because there are fewer people suffering in the South. And then Jarvis finds some numbers that seem to be just mistakes. He's living in Massachusetts, and he notices that there's an asylum in Worcester, Mass., that, according to the census, is supposed to have 133 Black patients in residence, all classified as insane or idiots. But actually, all of those 133 patients are white. So he keeps looking, and he sees that, according to the census, Scarborough, Maine is supposed to have six, quote, colored insane. But the number of Black residents? Zero. That happened in several places.
2: Cities where the number of Blacks were, let's say, two persons, but the number of persons considered to be in institutions from that city were 20. Overall, the numbers were extraordinarily in error.
0: When he gets well... Jarvis publishes a paper. He writes that the census was supposed to help advance medicine and science, but it's done the opposite. It has, quote, thrown a stumbling block in its way, which will require years to remove. Soon after, there's a resolution introduced in the House of Representatives to look into what happened. But the Secretary of State who's supposed to review the census results is none other than John C. Calhoun. And the person he chooses to check the census is William Weaver. Unsurprisingly, Weaver finds that everything was fine. Calhoun reports this and continues to make the argument that slavery is better for Black people than freedom would be. The questions stay on the census for decades. But in 1880, after the Civil War, the Census Office finally does its own study, and it finds that the results about insanity were, quote, "...entirely worthless." They removed the questions in 1900. And yet, by that point, in many ways, the damage had already been done. The
2: 1840 census had great significance for the next 120 years for the ways that African-American populations were viewed in the field of mental health. That notion uh, held that African-Americans were far more likely to develop problems of mental illness than any other population, if not owing to the absence of freedom, owing to their urban residence, lifestyle, vulnerability, things of that sort.
0: Dr. Davis has looked at this history up close. He's studied the records of a hospital that opened in Virginia in 1870, soon after the Civil War.
2: And it was called the Central Lunatic Asylum for the Colored Insane. It's the first mental institution in the United States built exclusively for people of African descent. And they kept the most extraordinary records that I've ever seen. 800,000 records and these 30,000 people that were admitted. Thirty-six thousand photographs, slides, negatives, diagnosis, prognosis, the treatment that they were provided. But you name it, we know how many potatoes they grew. We know how many chickens they had. And in those records, he sees patterns: overdiagnosis of schizophrenia and other severe mental illnesses, a disproportionate rate of involuntary admissions, a perceived risk of violence. We also found in the population uh, a low level of mental health literacy. African-American families that really did not understand much about the nature of these illnesses. We found lots of microaggression, the terminology that was used to describe Black patients in the records. Uh, We found a very limited rate of clinicians of color. And in fact, part of what we found significantly in these records was the utilization of work as the primary treatment intervention. So you see in the hospital itself, uh, these African-American patients were responsible for almost all the labor, cooking, cleaning, gardening, road work, et cetera. And we're wading our way through to understand a lot more about the evolution of mental health care
0: for African-Americans. How did you feel to be Thumbing through all those records and seeing what you saw, like, what was your experience of that?
2: It made me raise a personal question, and the, the personal question was, what happened to my grandmother Dotson?
0: These trends, overdiagnosis, involuntary commitment—they had very human costs. Dr. Davis's own grandmother actually died in a mental institution. That institution was later closed and sold.
2: And in selling it, the grave site where my grandmother purportedly was buried uh, was excavated and the graves and whatever remains there were were put in the back of a dump truck and taken to another site and covered over. Now I'm getting a little emotional about this because I've never been able to confirm why it was that my aunts, my uncles, and other relatives were not informed. And one of the things that has struck me as I've gone through the records at this hospital, are there not families in Virginia who are asking the same questions?
0: This idea that Black people were more prone to mental illness, the exaggerated risk hypothesis, it caused a lot of harm that persists through generations. Today, Black Americans are still overdiagnosed with severe mental illness like schizophrenia, and they're also less likely to seek help for mental health issues, partly because the system has historically been hostile to them. Delaying treatment, though, can exacerbate any problems that do exist. Plus, another factor to add to the mix Some studies now show that discrimination and racism can make issues like depression and anxiety worse.
2: It it is an extraordinarily complex circumstance.
0: And it grows out of this history fraught with error. The
2: 1840 census was notorious in terms of the people that were hired or appointed who didn't have the skill, knowledge, or commitment to accuracy.
0: And why is accuracy so important?
2: Well, because of the implications of the data. You know the old adage that statistics don't lie, but liars use statistics. Part of what every census offers is the opportunity for deviousness. The the census is a profound exercise by the United States government. It tells the population not only how many, but who are they.
0: Every 10 years, in 1840 and 1850 and 2020, we get the chance to try again, to tell ourselves who we are, and tell the truth. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching— Check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This podcast is produced by Andrew Canazero, McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Special thanks to our consulting editor, Thad Morgan, and to The Steve Fund, who helped connect us with Dr. Davis. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.
1: Hold up. What was that?